Thanks for downloading the Marcus Pie podcast. Welcome to the Marcus Pie podcast on historicracingnews.com. This episode brought to you by lemoncoupes.com. Visit lemoncoupes.com to see the range of iconic sports and race cars manufactured with the original designs of the 1960s. Today I find myself in rural Surrey. Uh, with one of the great enthusiasts of motorsport for the last half century or so, uh, and also one of the most influential people within racing for for many a year. With Liz Thacker uh, from uh, Shomex and BP, uh, to give it its complete uh, title. Um, Les, walking around your uh, lovely house here today, I've found a superb photograph of Chris Amon in the Alton Park Gold Cup, in the Ferrari, a little bit crossed up, absolutely superb, coming into your feet on the apex, and uh, it's clear you're just a total petrolhead. Well, it, that's a quite a good intro, how I got into motorsport, actually, Marcus, in terms of um, I left the army in 63 and was looking uh, round uh, for a job to do. Uh, today, of course, uh, youngsters would instantly aim for I- the IT industry. In those days, the go-go place to go was um, the oil industry, petroleum industry. So I wrote to a couple of companies, uh, SO and Shellmex and BP, as it then was, um, seeing if uh, I was employable. And uh, fortunately, Shellmex and BP said yes. Part of the process was a six-month uh, training session, uh, and part of that training session was a month at a huge installation, which is now part of the Chelsea Village, of course, um, uh, where uh, they had the uh, racing side. Um, in those days, of course, a lot of cars ran on dope, so it meant that um, uh, there had to be a team at all the... Uh, this is not marijuana, by the way. This is dope uh, fuel. No, yeah, this which is... Which comprised? Uh, methanol and alcohol and all the rest of it. Uh, so they'd have a team, of, uh, a specialist team, mostly drivers to take, um, that's the tanker drivers, to take all the kit to a track and set it up. Uh, but part of the process was uh, there was a laboratory, not at the track, but at the installation at uh, Lensbury, uh, which is by Wandsworth Bridge. Um, now, uh, I had to do a month in this lab, uh, not particularly uh, concerned with racing, but uh, specs for lubricants and uh, petrol and diesel and fuel oil because everything was quality tested before it left the uh, installation. Um, Tongue-in-cheek, I asked the boss of the labs about, uh, a bit of a young petrol head in those days, about uh, would it be possible to go to one of the meetings. Quite to my surprise, he said to me, there's a big Formula One meeting going on at Snetterton this weekend, Make sure you're in the Castle Hotel at Norwich for breakfast and somebody there will sort you out with passes. I unbelievable. So, of course, I made sure I was up at uh, Snetterton or Norwich, the Castle Hotel, 8 o'clock on the Sunday morning, walked in and all round the breakfast table, Innes Island, Graham Hill, Jim Clark and various other uh, top Formula One drivers having breakfast. They sort of said, sit down and have breakfast with us. I, just unbelievable for a, what, 20, 21-year-old. So um, that's how I started in terms of being connected. Uh, I was then into photography in a big way as well. Another stroke of luck. 
I wrote to the BARC, um, whose secretary was uh, John Morgan, saying, can I have a press pass? Again, tongue-in-cheek. And lo and behold, a press pass turned up for um, uh, one of the Goodwood meetings. Uh, took some photographs, sent them off to John. He started using them in uh, various BARC publications. Every time I wrote for a press pass, whether it be a Grand Prix or whatever, all of a sudden I was a photographer who, who apparently they knew. Uh, absolutely amazing. Fully fledged about five minutes. Overnight yeah. like sensation. <laughs> Could you do that today, Marcus? I suspect not. I think not. Um, so that's how I really started in, uh, in motorsport. Uh, purely by by luck, purely uh, because I, you know I was working for Shell Mex and BP, and don't forget Shell, BP, and SO were the fairy godmothers of motorsport, all things uh, motoring competition in those days. So um, it was a, a, just a very happy coincidence. But it was great because I mean you you approached them politely and in the right way. You rang a, uh, a bell with them tripped the cord and the gates opened and uh, you were in. That was it. But it got even better than that because um, uh, my real job with Shelmex and BP and ultimately BP uh, was marketing. So I had various nice jobs within uh, BP on the marketing side. But in, I think it was 68, uh, BP decided that, and don't forget, they were spending huge amounts of money in those days. They were, they were spending all the oil companies, tobacco-type money, budgets. Um, and uh, BP were heavily involved in the North Sea then on exploration and all the rest of it. And they were obviously looking at uh, uh, the bottom line and where to cut things. And one of the things they cut was motorsport. That was in 68. Esso, within weeks, decided this is a great move, so they pulled out. Uh, and that left really only Shell and Castrol sort of... Uh, uh, still operating within motorsport. Well, then in 74, about six or seven years later, uh, BP suddenly decided that they wanted to uh, get back into motorsport, not on the basis that had been done before, which was very much a corporate uh, exercise, but purely marketing-based with product. Uh, so motorsport had to sell product. And lo and behold, my name pops up and... Uh, I was asked if I'd like to uh, start up a division for motorsport again. How lucky can you get, Marcus? Is the Pope a Catholic? Absolutely. You were there. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, it got even better than that because I was given a free hand. I mean, it was starting off anew. Um, and the first meeting I went to of any significance was a bike meeting, funny enough, in the Isle of Man. And the Isle of Man, as you know, the TTs in June... Uh, with the Manx Grand Prix in September. And um, BP, or Shelmex and BP, still had this team of uh, drivers and uh, equipment and all the rest of it uh, operating out of the uh, base at uh, Town Mead Road in Wandsworth. And the Isle of Man TT has to have a whole infrastructure built around it for refueling and all the rest of it. So for three or four weeks, you know, the whole team used to go over to the Isle of Man to uh, set up all the kit there um, and, um, you know, associate themselves with all the competitors. So I took this as an exercise to go over and have a look at how motorsport was being done by uh, the competitors. And it suddenly dawned on me that um, there was probably, what, a 1,000 competitors over there, bikes, tie cars and all the rest of it. 
and every one of them on the fairings had uh, a decal, or they called in those days stickers. Uh, and in fact, they were lost. You could have a shell or a castrel or a Dunlop, uh, Ferodo, all these uh, stickers on the bikes. And in fact, you never saw any of them. It was like a wallpaper. And uh, I thought, well, there's, there's not much use joining this exercise because uh, all that's going to happen is you're going to put another sticker on the bike. So big risk. I took the decision for it would have been 75, the full season in 75, that we wouldn't go ahead and do as the other oil companies were doing, uh, having lots and lots of contracts. We'd pick out half a dozen on the car side, half a dozen on the bike side, and make them totally BP. Um, you know, I introduced um, BP leathers uh, for the riders. They all used to be run around in black leathers, if you remember, in those days. Absolutely. Uh, on the car side, we, we equipped our contracted drivers with those Chevron... Um, with the green and yellow green, Chevrons, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it got to the stage where you had some... Uh, really top-class competitors in various formulae coming to want to be associated with BP um, because, uh, A, there wasn't a lot of them. You know, they weren't up against a lot of other people. But, B, there was some sort of exclusivity in it. Very much so. And, and you had kind of a, a pretty much a free hand, did you, in, in all this? I, I so I can't believe how lucky I was. I mean, uh, obviously, there was uh, checks and all the rest of it on uh, with budgets and... Uh, how you performed um, but nobody sort of said to me we want you to do this as long as you were supporting the product uh, and that was having an end effect on sales uh, you were doing the right job it was a big risk of course because if you picked the wrong people um, uh, there wasn't an awful lot you could tell in advertising was there but um, it, you know it was just very very lucky and uh, we had some great guys along the way, people who everybody's heard of now. Mm. But you've been a big fan for a, a lot of years anyway prior to that, so you had your, your eye in on the game and uh, you knew who were the up-and-coming stars and who were the establishment, etc., and uh, so you could pick accordingly. Yeah, um, and as I say, there was this, this, this business of... Uh, it wasn't just the, um, uh, the competitors. You could actually pick... Uh, to a certain degree and get exclusive arrangements with um, suppliers. So, I mean, uh, we had a super arrangement going with Volkswagen Audi. Um, and uh, so we had all the top Formula 3 engines, the original Volkswagen engines that came out, uh, when everybody, I think, was you'll remember, were you using Toyota in those days? In F3, I think they were. F3, yeah, the Toyotas were pretty much the thing yeah. to have for most of the 70s into the yeah. early 80s. Then VW came in. That's right. Well, we were the first ones to uh, come in with um, VW. So there, there was there was a lot going for it as long as you got it right. And did that give you um, OE business as well uh, with those manufacturers? Well, you've hit it right on the head. I mean, when we got into uh, much, much later on, into bed with uh, Ford when they brought back the turbo F1 engine. Uh, the great selling point on that was that it wasn't just uh, factory fill business. Uh, it was um, the, uh, you know, the uh, recommendations for uh, lubricants. Don't forget, lubricants is the big profit earner. Um, petroleum product, i.e. either fuel, um, petrol or derv, 
I don't know if it's still called Dove, but diesel, um, the margins are very small on it, whereas um, lubricants is a much better much better earner for oil companies. And, and certainly we recall some of the great uh, BP campaigns and viscostatic comes straight to mind as being something that everyone had and then there were kind of, there were synthetic oils, weren't there, all sorts of bits and pieces. The whole marketplace moved on dramatically. But much of this with the benefit of... Uh, being seen, at least by the uh, by the end user, as being developed through your motorsport program. Well, they, they, uh, I, sh- I shouldn't probably say this, but BP were probably the worst marketeers of uh, all the oil companies. Shell were definitely top class marketeers. Um, BP were by far and uh, far and away the finest exploration company and the finest research company. All the uh, advances in lubrication in uh, for the ordinary guy in the street came from BP. First multi-grade oil, BP. First long-life oil, which they called long-life, BP. First um, very low viscosity oil, VF7. And um, so with VF7, of course, we tied that in with um, um, the Formula 2 European success with Tolman and Derek Warwick and Brian Henton. Uh, but the the thing about that was that, again, I had a free hand in terms of I didn't have to use um, Sarches. Uh, everybody's heard of Sarches, the huge advertising agency. Um, that was the main agency for BP. Uh, but all I wanted was a small creative workshop, if you like. So I was allowed to use a little workshop in Covent Garden who were top creative directors uh, from huge agencies like Sarches, who'd left to start their own agency and did nothing but creative work. They weren't interested in research or any of the other uh, add-ons which you get with a larger agency. So the the first thing I said to them when, um, you know, went to them to see what their ideas was, do not put anything in front of me that says BP wins again. Because you'll remember every advert in those days, Dunlop wins again, Shell wins again, Faroda wins again. Uh, and sometimes they're all advertising they won the same event. You know, how many times have you seen the Monte Carlo rally all been won by different companies? Now, it can only be one winner, but one of them would say they've won the Ladies' Cup. And uh, <laughs> um, But to me, that didn't actually say anything because, again, all the oil companies were doing the same thing. We win. So what I said to the agency is, let's have some sort of educational um, advert um, in terms of links the product to success, but not saying BP wins. And so they came out with these, um, well, fantastic series of adverts. And um, um, I'll show you some of those a little bit later on, uh, which... um, Leads me on to a lovely story about Sterling, actually, and and advertising with this agency. Um, Sterling had been uh, a long, long, long term uh, contracted driver with BP. I mean, he and Fangio were contracted way back in the very early 50s to BP. Um, And um, he was still with us when when I took over. And uh, I went to this agency and uh, uh, said, uh, you know, how about we use Sterling? And in those days, before uh, all the Adobe-type software you have today where uh, nothing is drawn, it's all done digitally on uh, computers, 
the scans that they put in front of you were always hand-drawn sort of cartoons. And so they, they went through this series of, sort of five or six uh, ideas about using Sterling. And they came to the last one, and all there was was Sterling's bald head from the sort of there up. And um, I said, God, God, I said, you know, he's a mate. I can't show him this. And they said, no, 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 it's a great idea. He'll love it. I said, no, 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 no. They said, well, you go through the rest of the five or six with him. But, you know, do us a favour, take this one as well. So anyway, pop round to Sterling's, you know, to uh, uh, have coffee and sort of discuss this advertising campaign with him. And I kept this one right to the end. And I'm terribly embarrassed. I said, oh, Sterl, I said, Look, I'm very sorry about this. Agency idea, of course, so nothing to do with me, you know. Blah, blah, blah. I'm not very happy about this. And he said, I love it. Fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, and that was, that was the winning advert. It came up with this fantastic uh, uh, headshot of Sterling from there up. But he's so recognisable, isn't he? You know, Absolutely. It's, yeah, um, it's just how it is. Uh, and again, this, this sort of linked the product to a personality, but not in this success way. Which, right. um, and Sterling loved his number seven. So was it a, a coincidence that VF7 became that? I, well, we, we, uh, when uh, I don't think it did, actually. I don't know. I, God knows how they came up with that idea. I, I wasn't privy to that. But, of course, we, we, the, the uh, Tolman car, which we talked about earlier, um, the winning car was number seven because we could actually pick the race number in those days. So, uh, and that was totally made out like a VF7 can, really. But, um, it was. Do you know that's 40 years ago? Um, I was at Goodwood for the launch of that team. As I'm sure you were on the same day. We're all there, and we wrote a great story about it for Autosport magazine. It made the front cover. The car looked a million dollars. And, of course, at the start of the season, it was Derek Warwick and, um, and Stephen South uh, going to drive the cars. And then Stephen had his accident uh, and, and other um, situations sort of um, unfolded, and Brian Henton was parachuted in and ended up well, winning that championship. That's, a, that's a, another story altogether, actually. Um, the um, this uh, Stephen, I, I think, was probably, in terms of raw talent, the most talented driver I ever had, I had ever signed up. Um, he was a very, very quiet character, and you could walk around uh, on the morning of a race, for example, at Snetterton Formula 3, you could walk around the paddock with him in the morning, and you... You know, you sensed whether he was going to blitz everybody or it was going to be another day. But if if he was on it, nobody could get near him. The guy who was running, um, I can't remember which Brabham it was. I think it was uh, Jeff Brabham. Is Jeff the oldest? Um, uh, Jeff's the oldest. Yeah, it? yeah, it was Jeff Brabham. Very famous Australian um, team manager called Pee Wee Siddle. Greg Siddle. Greg yeah. Siddle, yeah. yeah. Pee Wee. And... Um, uh, Stephen was really on it uh, one uh, one Sunday at uh, Snetterton in the Formula 3 and uh, I mean nobody got within well, country mile of him in practice and Pee Wee came up to me and said Gordon Bennett, Les uh, you know, we may as well send anybody, everybody home, you know, this is ridiculous but that was it, if he was on it he was away and um, um but that was a very sad episode, really, because um, part of the deal I had with Tolman's when we um, 
And Autosport ought to be congratulated on this because Autosport found out about it very early on. Um, I think I started talking to um, Alex Hawkridge in September of 79. Um, and, of course, everything was under wraps about they are building their own car and everything. Yeah. And you'd been, at that point, uh, supporting Derek Warwick with the um, sort of independent march, hadn't you? That's it. Yes. Uh, awful march. The 792. <laughs> Hideous and not very good, although oh, Mark Ciro did manage to win the championship. And he won. did, yeah. yeah. But uh, I think there was a lot of modifications went on in, uh, in his particular car. Um, but anyway, part of the deal was I said to Alex, look, um, we've got to have Stephen South and Derek Warwick. And he said, Stephen South, absolutely no problem. Uh, no, I don't want Warwick, not very keen on Warwick. And I said, well, that's the deal. You're going to have Derek Warwick as well. He said, well, he's a crasher. I said, no, he's not a crasher. I said, it's, um, you know, that's, uh, we had a bad season. Um, anyway, he took Derek and was blown over by Derek, obviously, because Derek did a fantastic job. Um, but the story about Stephen, I can't go into the real story about it, but what actually happened you can was... buy the book. So Yeah, buy the book, yeah. Um, and um, most of it is true, but um, uh, it, it, that was very, very sad because he went to um, uh, the States, uh, drove for Paul Newman in Can-Am and had that horrendous accident when everything stuck wide open and he went yeah. straight on in. Um, um, yeah, it's just so sad. I, um, Paul Newman was fantastic. He, um, after I think Stephen was what three or four months in hospital while they sorted him out, and obviously he lost he lost his leg in that uh, accident. Um, I picked Stephen up at the airport when he flew home with his father, and uh, it was just so sad. It was because mm. um, uh, he was a very, very, very talented lad. But it just kind of, he was the full package as far as the driving was concerned, but just out of the car, he was just very, very quiet, very meek, and, um, you know, he wasn't that sort of promotable mould that drivers are brought up to be now, where they have to sort of do everything to uh, to be great out of the car too. I mean, the, the, the Andy Prios of this world, who was fantastic in the car, but also brilliant out of it. He could talk to somebody in the boardroom. He could talk to the children of the of the guests, etc., and um, worked really, really well for him. But but Stephen was just kind of meek and kind of diffident and uh, uh, let his driving do the talking. Absolutely. And um, I, I still look back on those days with Stephen as um, uh, as fantastic, but at the same time very sad because he, un- in my book anyway, undoubtedly, uh, would have got into Formula One on a proper basis. I mean, he had the odd drive. Um, Test drove the uh, uh, Lotus down at uh, Recar, I think it was. Um, but um, the car didn't fit him, and mm. uh, lots of lots of things that weren't right. But he'd have certainly he'd have certainly been really well up there in Formula One. And it was an era, wasn't it, where of course um, we'd already by that stage very sadly lost Tony Bryce in the Graham Hill uh, aircraft accident, Roger Williamson tragically um, at Zandvoort, and he was another guy who was a, a sensational driver and uh, ran with some BP on it, didn't he? Well, yeah, I, um, uh, funny enough, just before I took over at uh, uh, BP, I'd met Tom through a connection. And, um, this is Tom so, Wheatcroft, yeah. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Uh, got to know uh, Roger, 
and his father, Dodge, who was uh, uh, a super character in his own right. Uh, but Roger, like um, uh, like uh, Tom Price, and um, there, there was about three or four of them who uh, uh, should have made it into... Yeah, the knocking on the door, weren't they? Yeah. And the right breaks would have definitely been right there. Uh, but in those days, of course, it was all as it is today, but in a totally different uh, culture. It was all about money and if you were able to raise money and all the rest of it. And... Um, uh, that's why, really, in in many ways, I stopped uh, supporting foreign drivers, and we went totally British. I think the last foreign driver I had was um, Nelson, um, and uh, and he went straight into Formula One with uh, with Bernie, wasn't he? With Brabham. Yeah, he was um, he was quite something. He had those two Formula Three roles that he was uh, alternating between in uh, yeah. um, in yeah. the championship and, and did brilliantly well. Well, Pee Wee rang him, of course, and uh, um, but uh, uh, Nelson again was an uh, extraordinary character. I, and there are so many memories I got. I remember Nelson came and had dinner with uh, uh, me and my wife one night, and. Um, Hi-fi was a big thing in those days. It was a real buzzword. You know, everybody had uh, uh, hi-fi outfits, stacks of stuff. And um, he suddenly got into hi-fi, and I got some units in the uh, in the living room at home. And uh, he was more into talking about this hi-fi than he was. I, all I was interested in talking to him about, uh, you know, racing exploits. But uh, he was into hi-fi and. Uh, uh, just to, again to see him, his wife, and he had a young son then, Geraldo, I think his name was, um, and uh, um, to be associated with these people is another sort of highlight. As you're just so extraordinarily lucky uh, to have gone through life in this sort of era, mixing with these sort of people. <laughs> Le Mans Coupés are the only manufacturer that can produce both road and FIA HTP spec GT40s with GT40P chassis numbers. All cars are factory built to the original designs and our race cars are eligible for international competition. We also produce road and race Cobras and Corvette Grand Sports. Find iconic 60s sports and race cars at lemoncoupes.com. So there's fascinating stuff. I mean, uh, I, I'm absolutely intrigued by uh, James Hunt because having had various run-ins with him over the years, <laughs> good and bad, <laughs> um, he was just an extraordinary character. Well, French Grand Prix, I'm pretty sure it was uh, about 78, something like that. And by then, James was doing the... Um, Interround commentaries with Murray, which was an interesting pairing. What a uh, dynamic! <laughs> anyway, um, uh, Murray, we were de- we got down to the French Grand Prix at Ricard uh, on the Thursday, and strangely enough, all the teams stayed at Banlon, and uh, I don't think it had anything to do with the banlon beach oh, being ba- banyol. totally banyol. Banyol, being yeah. totally topless i think it had something to do with it sure it did uh, but um uh, anyway murray grabs me um on the thursday late thursday afternoon and said you you doing anything 
are you doing anything tonight? So I said, well, not too sure, uh, actually. Murray said, would you do me a favour? He said, uh, I got two BBC executives, he said, accountants over, he said, uh, just looking at what we're doing. And he said, uh, entertaining them to dinner, he said, uh, with James. He said, would you come along and tell a few stories? So I said, well, yeah, OK, Murray. So anyway, Murray had sorted out this beautiful restaurant, you know, uh, um, on on the, uh, the on the pavement, you know, lovely food and all the rest of it. And I always remember these two BP, uh, BBC executives had suits on. You know, I mean, we're on the south of France. It's slightly um, incongruous. Though. Yeah, so ed- anyway, and they were both Scotsmen and very dour, you know. And uh, so uh, there was no James. So I was, <laughs> I'm sitting opposite these two executives from the BBC, and Murray's sort of uh, in between them. And um, uh, so we have the first course, and... Uh, Murray's getting a bit anxious because there's still no uh, James and he's making excuses like, well, you know, James is probably doing his homework, which I thought rather funny. But um, uh, anyway, uh, I was beginning to run out of stories. We'd gone through the main course and we just about get to the pud. And in the distance, I can see James with two rather uh, attractive young ladies on each arm walking along the pavement. I thought, Gordon Bennett. Uh, fortunately, the BBC executives had their back to him, and I sort of kicked Murray, and Murray looked back and went white, you know, absolutely. And James walked straight past, didn't recognise any of us, and uh, the BBC executives didn't didn't recognise the back of him, and um, it was just extraordinary. But that was James. I mean, uh, uh, he was... uh, as I say, if, if you were trying to use him in, in promotions, which he did very well, I mean, look at those Texaco adverts, fantastic. But um, uh, getting him there and uh, getting him right and everything must have been a nightmare. <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't like Sterling, who in, in you know, so many later years had Susie there running his diary and making sure he was doing everything that he could possibly do, milking the, uh, the applause of the crowd oh. and, and, and working his sponsorship and all the rest of it. Sterling was an absolute, um, just fantastic to work with, absolutely fantastic. First of all, he was very honourable, an absolute gentleman, uh, BP never ever had a contract with him in all those years. I used to send him a letter uh, setting out a couple of things, no contract, not one of these sort of four inch Formula One things. Um, and he always performed, did everything perfectly. Um, I went into his office one day, I hear so many stories about Sterling, and he looked at me, always called you old boy. Hello, old boy. And he said, Hang on a minute, I'm just uh, writing a few checks out. And uh, I said, God, that's, that's all right. And he said, I just, just changed my bank, old boy. I just changed to the, I think it was the Chartered Bank. And the checkbook was one of those big commercial ones, you know, not like the ones we great big sort of four-inch wide thing. <laughs> but what, um, what amazed me was it was the first um, uh, image checkbook I'd ever seen. They had this fantastic photograph of him uh, bleached out, of him in the van more, you know, they stretched out the side on, yeah, uh, instantly recognizable to Sterling as the van more. Um, and that was the background to each check. So I said, God, they're fantastic, Sterling. Well, I've never seen a check like that. 
He said, no, no, no. He said, I just had them done. He said, it, uh, they, they like the idea as well. So I said, well, God, they look great. I said, I wouldn't mind one of those. He said, oh, you like one, old boy? I said, yeah, I, well, yes, if I could still. He said, uh, what's your favourite number? So I said, well, same as you, seven. He said, yeah, well, I just started this one. Hang on. So he got to 0000007 check, wrote on it, and handed it to me, and it said, pay Les Thacker, and he said, don't cash that in, and it had one P on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I still got that check somewhere. I must get it framed, but um, uh, it, that was Stirl. There's another lovely story about Stirl. We were uh, uh, going to open a motor show or something in, uh, I think it was Norwich. Anyway, it was a train from uh, Liverpool Street, and... Uh, uh, Racing drivers are the most unreliable. They are never on time. So I always used to allow a big time envelope where anything we were doing was still. Um, and, um, I mean, even if we were driving to uh, a race meeting somewhere, it'd always leave an hour because uh, it, it'd never be, never be ready. Anyway, I got, on, I got a taxi from the office round to... Uh, Shepherd Street, where Stell's house was, to pick him up. Susie comes to the door and says, um, it's a little bit late at the moment. I said, oh, all right. So got rid of the taxi driver. And uh, about half an hour later, we were ready to go. I said, I'll get a taxi. And Sterling said, no, we're going on a scooter. And I thought, oh, <laughs> Gordon Bennett. Last thing you want. Yeah. So uh, I said, look, cause I'm in a pinstripe suit ready to go to this thing, you know. And he said, uh, no, it's all right, boy. Uh, it's all right, old boy. We'll take the scooter. Much better. Um, I said, but I've got no kit still. He said, that's not a problem. So older viewers will recognise this phrase. He came out, gave me this Flasher's Mac. Now, a Flasher's Mac was <laughs> what those uh, strange men used to wear in Charing Cross Road and suddenly open it. And they uh, different times, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, <laughs> hopefully that was where the term flashing came in. So he gives me this flashing Mac, and I said, "I haven't got a helmet still." So he said, "Oh, I have Susie's, which was a deer stalker helmet." You know, absolutely ridiculous. So I climb on this scooter, um, and uh, we get down the end of Shepherd Street, and uh, Stell says, um, "I think we could be running out of fuel, old boy." Oh, <laughs> God, been it. So he pulls alongside a taxi driver, and everybody knows Sterling, you know. And uh, then I think everybody knew about the scooter as well. And he said to the cabbie, oh, morning cabbie, he said, do you know where there's a garage open? I can get some two-stroke fuel. And the cabbie driver said, oh, yes, Mr Moss, Mr Moss. So we fill up with fuel and uh, head off for Liverpool Street Station again. And by now, yeah, it's touch and go get to the end of Regent Street and he leans round and he says, get off! I said, what? He said, get off! I said, what? He said, get off the scooter! So I thought, God, so I'm in this flasher's mat, deer stalker helmet, <laughs> amongst you know, everybody's trying looking to get... Looking like a prized yeah, goon. <laughs> trying to get to the office. So I get off the scooter <sighs> and we push it across this zebra crossing with all these people crossing. I thought, what the hell's going on? Get to another zebra crossing push that across that one and he says to me right get on and of course I suddenly realised what he'd done was he knew everything so well 
we'd missed all the no right turns, no left turns, pushing this damn scooter. Anyway, get to Liverpool Street, just get on the train. I mean, parking the thing was another thing. And the train was one of those um, old ones. You remember the separate compartments where... Yep, absolutely. Go into the uh, our reserve seats and uh, all on our own, just get out of Liverpool Street. And the door opens, a steward there says, good morning, Mr Moss. Now, he didn't know, he'd never met Sterling before. Uh, good morning, Mr Moss, would you like coffee? But Sterling was just instantly recognisable, you know... Uh, uh, the story of everybody saying, um, who do you think you are, Sterling Moss, uh, brings to mind yet another story. We were driving again somewhere to some race meeting and uh, Sterling uh, was very kind. I used to drive everywhere. I and mean, if he trusted you, you drove, you know. And um, we were driving somewhere and he had his helmet. And no, his... no pressure there. <laughs> no, he had his helmet and his overalls on the back seat and something suddenly came to me about uh, if we were stopped, what what a policeman would say. And um, so I said to Sir, I said, and he was always getting stopped, you know, for various slight uh, speeding offences. Dogs in baskets, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> and um, I said to him, uh, yeah, well, you ever get stopped by a police? He said, well, funny enough, I got stopped here. Yeah. Few weeks ago, he said, um, "You know, and uh, um, I'm going slightly more than the speed limit." I said, "Oh, right. I said, well, what, what did the policeman say?" He said, "Well, he's very polite. He's wound down the window, and the policeman says to me, morning, sir. Do you realise you were going a little bit fast?'" And starts saying, "What well, as we all say, don't we all? Oh, was I? You know." So the copper apparently said to Sterling. Sterling's repeating this. He said. Uh, What's your name, sir? Uh, so Sterling said, well, Moss. Moss. Yes, Moss, right. Uh, your first name? Uh, well, Sterling. How do you spell that? <laughs> <laughs> and Sterling wasn't amused. But, uh, <laughs> no, but, but um, it, just, it just brings back so many memories of, uh, you know, of these people you've been with and associated yeah. with and... Uh, the 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 stories you can tell over the the dinner table. Exactly, exactly. Rolling forward a little, um, you were involved, obviously, in in nurturing a, a lot of young British talent through kind of in the early eighties, through the Formula Fords and Formula Ford two thousands, and into Formula Three. They were real. It was really a golden era for for British racing. A lot of superb talent out there, and you had. I guess people like um, Julian Bailey, Johnny Dumfries, those sort of guys coming through, uh, and many others. Um, memories of that uh, era? Well, yeah. Um, Johnny is a, 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 a classic example, actually, that um, uh, he's a blue blood, as you know. He's, uh, uh, he's now Johnny Butte, but he's the Marquis of Butte. And um, uh, a lot of these... Uh, uh, gentlemen have, um, uh, shall we say, uh, go off the rev limit particularly. You know, they they go from zero to ten thousand revs. Like, like in terms of uh, uh, the way they uh, they can change, they get upset very quickly. Some of them do. And um, Johnny was, um, I think it was eighty three. He'd been in. I can't remember. He'd been in a route. I don't know whose route it was. 
uh, and was very quick but um, inconsistent. Yep. And um, Dave Price, Pricey, who was running a BP team for us, uh, said um, this this and I can't do uh, Dave's Cockney accent. We know what Dave's like. <laughs> um, uh, it's bloke Dumfries. Uh, Shall we give him a run at Doddington? And um, I think it was late late September, October. So I said, well, yeah, all right, well, we don't know who we're going to run next year. Well, let's have a look at him. So Johnny was sensational. But race day, it rained like hell. And he was having a dice up front with Tommy Byrne, who was another super talent. Who was massively quick. <laughs> yeah. yeah, never connected with BP, but a super talented lad. And um, I think Johnny fell off about, um, well, one lap from the end in the rain, uh, came in and stripped off his helmet and uh, uh, didn't treat it very nicely. It was in a... And I said to him, yeah, Johnny, that's, uh, that's no way. He said, well, you know, I'm totally mucked up there, you know, there's a chance I had, blah, blah, blah. And he was really upset with himself. So I said, well, you know, let's wait and see. So uh, anyway, we gave him the right next year, and you know what happened. I mean, he just walked everything. And he would have won the European Championship as well, but there was a few, um, how shall I put this politely, machinations that went on <laughs> with an Italian team uh, where there was some, uh, some talk about discrepancies. But mm, um, mm. So he just lost out on the um, European Championship as well. I, I knew Johnny when he was a, a, a painter and decorator. Painter and decorator in Fulham. In Fulham. Yeah. Brilliant. My, probably my only claim to fame in Formula Ford was getting taken off by Johnny Dumfries <laughs> on the first lap of a race at Alton Park and um, standing there in the paddock afterwards remonstrating with him. And the guy who owned my car, Mark Peters from, uh, from Slush Puppy, comes up and sees the two of us having a bit of a get-together and he says... Uh, have a crisp, boys. <laughs> we just fell about. And I think, yeah, to think that he went on to race in Formula One, he went on to win Le Mans, etc., uh, is, is just brilliant. Well, Johnny's cousin, of course, was a, another really good driver who I, I was great friends with, and um, uh, Charlie Crichton-Stewart. And, of course, it's Charlie's black book of uh, contacts and addresses uh, you know, I think he had to, well, he had to lock it up in a safe every night, I think. It was, as you say, priceless. Um, but Charlie was the same. He could go off the rev limiter instantly. And we were down at, um, uh, good for a, keep, sounds awful, this, Monaco Grand Prix. And we were staying in the, I don't know what it's called now, but it's the only hotel um, in uh, Monte Carlo with its own beach. It was called the Beach Plaza in those days. I don't know what it's called now, but it's the right at the far end of uh, uh, Monaco on the Italian side. And uh, anyway, Charlie and I were going to have a meeting about something the following morning for, for um, uh, over breakfast. Well, Charlie's always late, and uh, so the time Charlie uh, and it must have been the Saturday when there's. No racing uh, on Grand Prix weekend. I think I'm right. It's on Saturday, they did, they they organise the timetable all differently for Monaco. Uh, anyway, there's no Charlie. Uh, Five to eleven. I'm still waiting for him in the breakfast buffet area. Nothing. Ten past eleven. Charlie turns up, and 
I said, well, I thought we were going to have breakfast, Charlie. He said, yeah, yeah, it's not a problem, not a problem, he said, uh, and called across, and it reminded me of the waiter in uh, 40 Towers. Oh, Manuel. Manuel. <laughs> so this poor little monogast waiter comes across, and Charlie said, uh, good morning, uh, we'll have breakfast. And the waiter, it was straight out of Monty, Monty Python, said, he's a finished. <laughs> so Charlie said, no, 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 you don't seem to understand. We'd like breakfast, please, so we'll, we'll, we'll have breakfast. Yeah, I, he's a finished. Breakfast, he finished. 11 o'clock, he finished. Charlie said, I don't think you quite understand. We are residents here. Will you get us breakfast? So he said something again. Well, Charlie had, had um, uh, spent uh, his youth because his father, Lord Patrick uh, Crichton Stewart, had a villa at Cap Dye, which is the next little place along from uh, Monaco. Uh, so Charlie had spent a lot of his youth in France, so he spoke perfect French. So started uh, uh, calling this uh, poor little monoguest waiter um, uh, everything under the sun, and there are a few choice words in <laughs> French which are very insulting. <laughs> so this poor bloke was there, and Char- he still wasn't doing it. So Charlie said, "Get me the manager." So of course the manager had been to you know Trust House Forties Charm School and everything, you know. So he comes along. Service with the grimace. That comes along to uh, uh, to us, and Charlie sort of said, "Look," and the manager said, "Mr. Crichton Stewart, it's absolutely no problem. Of course, you can have breakfast." And the instant thing was, Charlie went from this purple foaming to puce. To, <laughs> so very kind of you. Thank you very much indeed. You know, <laughs> but. Um, uh, there again, uh, um, uh, Charlie was a damn good racer. He was Formula 3 with uh, Charlie Lucas, Piers Courage. In fact, they all shared, uh, they all shared that f- famous flat in Harrow Road, Bubbles Horsley um, and Frank Williams. And uh, um, you can't tell the stories on camera, but uh, some of the stories about uh, uh, Dave Brodie, and, uh, who was another one of the set there, and... Um, the, uh, the the things they used to get um, uh, Frank to do because Frank was uh, always short of a few uh, bob, but uh, yeah, some of the things they used to get uh, Frank to do to, uh, was uh, uh, something again. That, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's amazing, and I mean, I just I just love the way you can recall these stories. I mean, you know, I've been involved in racing for forty odd years, and there's just Thousands of them. Everything just trips another memory, doesn't it? And uh, the the problem is, Marcus, uh, you're you know you're a craftsman with words, and uh, uh, people say to you, "Why don't you write a book?" And the problem is, you can't write a book because you can't tell the real stories. Yeah. Um, and it's useless writing a book. Which um, how many motor racing books uh, you know is written by a driver or ghosted by a driver, and it says. Um, you know, on the fourth lap at Alton Park, I did a one thirty-two. Boring as hell. The 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 best book, the, one of the best reads ever, is uh, AJ's book, Alan Jones's book. And um, there's another friend of mine. Tell it as it is, I should think. Oh, there's another friend of mine who sadly died a couple of years ago, and you probably bumped into him. Um, uh, I call him an American, Keith Botsford, who was the Sunday Times 
correspondent for 20 years. But what people don't realise about Keith was he was the most incredibly cultured, cosmopolitan character. His mother was an Italian countess, so he'd been brought up in, in Italy and in England. He was a professor emeritus uh, of uh, one of the East Coast universities in the States. I think it was Boston University. Um, he'd uh, worked in intelligence with the army, so I don't have to go into that anymore and the connections with the States. And um, he was just a fantastic uh, guy to have dinner with. And we were, we were in Budapest, uh, and we were, he'd take me out to dinner, and we were talking over dinner. And it was the most incredible history lesson. Uh, he was telling me all about Budapest, you know, there's two cities, one side of the Danube and mm. all the rest of it. Um, but we, we, he ghosted Alan's book and uh, it was just about to be published. So we got talking about the book and he said, oh, God. He said, that was a nightmare. I said, really? Because I knew Alan very well and I knew a lot of Alan's stories. And uh, I said, why was that? He said it took six drafts before we could get it through to lawyers. <laughs> um, so, uh, but it is an amazingly uh, a good read because it is, as you say, tell it as it is. Um, yeah, I had great fun times with Alan as well. He, he was the perfect guy for the Williams FWO seven, oh, really, wasn't he? I mean, sort got, of bull-necked, and he could put up with any amount of downforce oh. and uh, massively determined. You wouldn't have thought, perhaps, on his way up, he was necessarily going to make it, but uh, he was there well, in the right, probably car, knew the right him time. In, you probably knew him in Formula Atlantic. Well, I remember uh, him in Formula 3, a little bit of Formula yeah. Atlantic, yeah, yeah. But he, um, the only person he ever feared uh, who I... Knew very well because she got on very well with my uh, French wife, was Beverly, his wife. And I think that's the only person he ever feared because she kept him in order, you know, I mean, uh, no doubt about it. But you know, the, the famous story about uh, Alan, uh, AJ, uh, he did the sort of James Hunt uh, part for Channel 9 in, uh, in Australia Aus yeah. after he'd retired from racing. And I remember this, this particular incident because. Uh, the week after, or two weeks after, I think it was a Mexico Grand Prix, but it concerned Gerhard Berger, who was driving for Ferrari. And um, he went on in at, uh, I think it was the same sad corner which uh, Ayrton uh, uh, had his accident in. Um, anyway, the, there was a small fire on the Ferrari and the uh, Australian Murray Walker turned to, to Alan and said, Oh, wow. Look at that, Alan. That looks a bit dodgy. And AJ said, wow, looks like a well-done burger to me. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the switchboard melted, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, yeah, there no, were that... some real characters. I think were, back in those days, 70s and 80s, it was Formula One was replete with characters. They could say what they liked. They did say what they liked. And um, and they were very popular for it. Um, and, and these days it's all a bit kind of monotone, isn't it? Well, I think the sad thing is, that, I mean, uh, if he could be let off the leash, I'd love to really listen to Vettel. Um, but there's always uh, a PR person behind with a tape recorder, isn't it? I mean, they can't really say... Uh, what they want, I'm yeah, sure. That, that's right. There was some amazing contrast back then, days when um, you know you had sort of battles between uh, Nigel Mansell and um, 
and and the rest of them really because Nigel was just incredible on his day but you compared him with Nelson Piquet or whatever as, as, as characters they were just yeah. polar opposites weren't they and uh, they appealed to different sections of the public yeah um, and those are the days when autosport was selling a hundred thousand a week and a good week when our Nigel was um, was winning yeah uh, yeah absolutely again, again the internet has has done so much damage to <laughs> Well, it's sad in a way, isn't it? I, um, I'm, I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I, I like a magazine that, yeah, um, that I can read anywhere, a hard copy. Yeah, yeah. Um, may it continue. Yeah. It's, um, no, I, I, again, it's the culture you're brought up in, isn't it? You know, I mean, to, for the youth of the day, they are so used to uh, uh, everything being computerised that... Um, um, Probably it doesn't make any difference to them at all. Yeah, it's like these days, you know, you've got your, your eight-year-old Carter um, goes out for a test session at Rye House, or whatever it is, comes back in, and the first thing to look at is a computer trace of what oh. he's done. I mean, it kind of wasn't really happening in uh, a lot of the years that, um, that, that you were involved at the, at the coal phase, the front line. No, it's... Um, uh, I mean, the, the engineers have, uh, haven't really changed in, in terms of... Um, uh, the data they're taking. It's just the way it's presented now. That's right. But and I think, you know, you, got, you had drivers who would instinctively, back in the 70s and 80s, they'd come around and they'd actually know within a tenth what they were going to see on their lap boards. Um, it wouldn't ping up on the dash, but um, they'd knew they'd, they'd, they'd know they'd done an 18.2 at Brands Hatch or whatever it was, not an 18.3 or 4. Um, and it's, you know, it's just very different and it, it's... Um, different. It's why it's why drivers from different eras wouldn't really have have thrived in any other area. It's easy to say, oh, who was the best or who wasn't the best. But you know, Fangio wouldn't have worked particularly well in another era. Um, Michael Schumacher wouldn't have worked, you know, fifteen twenty years before um, he was in his full pomp. And um, you can only be compared with those who you're directly competing against at the time, can't you? Uh, but there are people. I mean, Ari Ayrton Senna was uh, just—you were privileged to watch Ayrton, and he was a—he was almost computerized. I, uh, the uh, Australian Grand Prix in Adelaide—it must have been about eighty-six because I was looking after Johnny then, Johnny Dumfries, and Johnny was his um, partner in uh, the Lotus Grand Prix car. And I'd gone out to one of the corners uh, on one of the practice sessions to have a look at, you know, the car and what it was doing and everything. And um, in those days on the long haul uh, Grand Prix, uh, there was no facilities. I mean, everybody operated out of sort of uh, refrigerated uh, 45-foot containers. There was no huge hospitality things they have uh, today. And um, anyway, we came in after the practice and... I was at one end of the uh, uh, the container with Johnny talking about something, and Ayrton was at the far end of the container fiddling about with his helmet, I mean, putting a visor on or something, uh, ready to go out again. And I was talking to Johnny about a particular corner and uh, uh, what the Lotus was doing, and I could see Ayrton sort of like this. And he came across, he said... What was that you were saying, Les, about that corner? What was the car doing? And I thought, 
the guy never switches off. So I remember him in Formula Ford uh, really well uh, in uh, in eighty one, and um, he went to Thruxton, where you know a Formula Ford car on treaded tyres is bucking and writhing all around the back of the circuit, and he put in several laps that were within a hundredth or two of each other, not just a tenth or a half a second, as some of the others might have aspired to. And he was just extraordinary. And that ability to go flat out, out of the blocks, while everyone else is saying, oh, well, the tyre's quite warm enough, can I lean on them into this corner, um, didn't really kind of, um, didn't occur to him. It was just one of those things that his ability transcended. Well, in, the, in those... Uh, uh, you witnessed them as I did, those days of the grenade turbo, you know, especially yeah. for the last five laps of a uh, qualifying session. Um, it didn't matter where you were. Ayrton would go out right at the end and every team manager went out to have a look. Yes. Uh, they yeah. all went out on the, uh, uh, out of the, out of the pits to, to, to watch him. It was just phenomenal. The, the, I remember, funny enough, one more story about drivers who are like computers. Um, I remember chatting with Ken Tyrrell once, and we were talking about Jackie. Um, and I said to Ken, you know, what makes Jackie so so good, so, you know, so much ahead of everybody else? And he said, we sit down, and he said, if we reckon that it's going to be a one thirty four six to do a lap to win the race... He said, Jackie can go out there. And he said he'll do a 134.6, one. And he said, he's so consistent. We decide how quick he's going to go. And he said he can just... And again, it's just this sort of uh, talent, uh, which is not just driving quick, but is being able to... Is that superhuman put ability. Everything yeah. yeah, and everything yeah. gets paced, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I you know, I think when you talk about uh, Ayrton going incredibly quickly into practice, I always remember standing at Brown's Hatch on Paddock Hill Bend on the Marshall's post watching uh, Keke Rosberg come out for his final qualifying lap in that uh, Williams Honda, which was a bit of a shed, really, but had loads and loads and loads of power. And I remember him coming out of the pits, coming through uh, to start the uh, the flying lap, and taking about three steps back behind this simple little breeze block Marshall's hut, which wouldn't have protected us for anything, and then he come off it. And then the next lap he came through pulling out 190 miles an hour or something up to Paddock Hill Bend, and you thought to yourself, he's earned his money. He did the same thing at Silverstone, that incredible lap he did at Silverstone. But uh, but you saw you saw all the best of them, and you saw some who, I guess, disappointed you by not perhaps making it. Um, to the to the absolute uh, to the top ranks, guys that you'd um, nurtured and helped along the way. Uh, one or two didn't quite get there, uh, or sh- found their or found their metier in a in a different uh, uh, motorsport arena. Perhaps not in Formula One, but in sports cars. Yeah, um, one of, I suppose one of the disappointments was, uh, and again it involves Ayrton because. Um, uh, might have put out in the car, but by then, at the end of 82, I think I decided that we'd only, you know, we, we, we had to really keep concentrating on British drivers, uh, was that uh, we put Calvin Fish in the car in um, 83, the year before Johnny. Mm. And uh, he, he didn't perform as I thought he was going to. He, um, 
uh, he'd win a few races then. It just wasn't consistent. But uh, he went off to America, and I think he did okay in uh, some of the formula over there. And, and became a commentator over there. Which, oh, did he? Uh, did oh. very, very well at it. But oh, uh, right. the other guy who always strikes me as being someone who perhaps got away was um, was John Pratt, who's now very instrumental uh, uh, in running um, the the simulators for these, for these young drivers. And uh, on his day, he was phenomenal, wasn't yeah. he? I think John was just a bit too tall. He was. He was, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but, uh, no. He was, he was from down the, down Bournemouth Way. And uh, I remember a, uh, Adrian Reynard saying something about him, which was uh, which was funny. Adrian, who'd built cars and he'd raced in, in Formula Ford, etc. He said, See, yes, he said, the problem with, uh, with John was that um, he was uh, the most consistently inconsistent driver I ever worked with. <laughs> Yeah. Which of course is the thing he's knocking out of all these clients who um, uh, who come along to learn the uh, the trade today. A very very different uh, era. Yeah, I th- that's not a that's not a bad uh, analysis by Adrian actually. Um, yeah, he he was. Um, I think when he came out with that revolutionary Formula Ford car, the very pointed one. That's the first year I had an involvement with Adrian, although his father worked for BP. I knew his father very well. Really? His father was uh, one of the top automobile uh, engineers we employed at uh, BP uh, on the development side. And uh, uh, he was very, very proud of his uh, of his son. Um, yeah, and, and still, still club racing and historic racing and things today, Adrian. Yeah, is he? Absolutely oh, right. loving every second of it. Yeah, it's my, uh, uh, not terribly, uh, uh, Adrian tried to teach me to water ski and I wasn't, uh, wasn't too good at that, mind you. I think him and Rick were... Uh, at, uh, Tricky Ricky Gorn. <laughs> could sell fridges to Eskimos. He, he was amazing, yeah. absolutely. Probably only bettered by Robin Hood. <laughs> another story, another story. But uh, you had a, a, a wonderful career, which you didn't kind of really leave formally, did you? Just kind of, um, uh, you sort of backstepped a little bit away, uh, but still called up as a uh, on consultancy basis. Yeah, well, I left BP in '85. Um, everybody thought I'd had a brain hemorrhage. Um, because uh, you you don't leave the position I had with two children and a mortgage, um, but uh, I decided I wanted to do my own thing, nothing to do with motorsport, but um, a purely um, advertising and marketing agency. And within six months, I'm back uh, as a consultant for BP. Uh, the interesting thing is that as a consultant, people listen to you, whereas if you're just a senior manager. Um, they don't listen to you all the time, but, uh, um, and uh, and the pay is somewhat better as well. Always helps, doesn't it? Yes, <laughs> it sweetens the pain. Yes, yeah. But uh, so I never really left BP until about uh, two thousand, sometime in uh, the early two thousand two thousand one, and by then I'd um, been with them, uh, taking them into Formula One with um, Ford. Um, uh, LaRousse uh, that was another interesting experience with LaRousse very French team um, and BP France asked me if I'd uh, sort that out for them and um, my goodness me uh, uh, the LaRousse team taught me how to do uh, or how to experience hospitality they had it down to a T 
didn't matter where in the world you were, the very finest restaurant they used to entertain their uh, uh, their VIPs. As and, one would uh, expect. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Inversely proportional to results. Yeah. Um, and uh, they had some interesting drivers, but very French. And uh, um, they should have done an awful lot better than they did. But, um, but there's always extenuating circumstances in these cases, aren't there? But, um, I mean, over 40-odd over years, you saw the best and the worst of, uh, of motorsport at all levels. And um, a, a fantastic position to have um, had a career of, of that magnitude. I think it's amazing, remarkable. Well, I suppose, in a way, it's like being a professional golfer, isn't it? You know, where can you... Uh where can you do something and get paid, do something you love and get paid for it as well? As they say, it beats working. <laughs> <laughs> Les Thacker, thank you very much indeed. <laughs>